there's this dichotomy. When researchers consider whether or not parents are happy, what they look at is what they call parental efficacy. So that means whether or not you feel like you're pretty good at this thing. So even though I sort of started out, I actually make a joke to my kids, I didn't write a book about how to be a better parent. I wrote a book about how to be a happier parent, okay? Sorry, I forgot to make you a haircut appointment. But whether or not we feel like we're pretty good at this has to do with our happiness. The truth is that we really do want our kids to be sort of happy. At any given moment, you look at your kids, you want them to be happy. But on the other hand, you really don't want to raise the child who has never so much as lost a balloon. That would be the worst college roommate ever. That was New York Times contributing editor and best-selling author K.J. Dallantonio on the importance of happiness in successful parenting. And this is Best Breakouts from the Conferences for Women, an audio series that offers timeless insights from our archives to help you advance at work and in life. In this session, Successful and Happy Parenting, KJ will bring both humor and practical advice to help you deal with those common battlegrounds from screen time to sibling rivalry and find more happiness in the process. Let's get started. Gosh, this is great. I was a little concerned because this is, although to me, this is very career oriented because being a happier parent helps you be healthier and happier in all areas of your life. I thought, well, it's not a very career-y thing. I wonder how many people will come, but here you are. And this is fantastic. I'm so excited to talk to you. So I wanted to start by sharing with you the first line of my book, which I actually have memorized, but I will read it anyway. (laughs) I had been a parent for close to 12 years by the time it occurred to me to ask myself, if the whole thing had to suck quite as much as it seemed to most days. So my oldest at this point is 12 and my youngest is seven. And I've just taken on the job at the New York Times. I'm editing and writing the Motherload blog. It's full-time. My partner has a full-time job as well. We were living, as we still do, in New Hampshire. So I'm commuting sometimes to New York, not that often. I have this fantastic, super flexible job. His job's pretty flexible too. And yet our lives are like up in the air crazy with these four kids. And of course, at the times I... And I'm covering this. So I'm writing and I'm editing and I'm researching and I'm doing all the topics that have to do with parenthood and policy, daycare, lack thereof, family leave, lack thereof, support for when it's summer, for your kids and not summer for you. The fact that the... (laughs) Thank you, society. The fact that the Census Bureau still classifies childcare provided by fathers as babysitting So I'm covering all this, and that's the serious stuff. Like, that's the stuff that makes it hard to be a happier parent because, honestly, our culture and our society, they aren't helping. We talk a really good game about supporting family. We're all about family in this country as long as you can do it yourself. So (laughs) realistically, there are sort of objective things that make this challenging, but we're all in that boat. What was interesting is that I was also editing and writing personal essays and sort of dealing with the personal side of familyhood. And that's the stuff about soccer and minivans and sippy cups. And what was getting to me is that all of that had that same message too. And that message was, this is hard. This is a slog. This is difficult every day. You got to put wine in my sippy cup to get me through it. 
And I was feeling that. I mean, we were in the middle of it. It'll tell you a lot about us that when my oldest was in second grade, so we live in rural New Hampshire, so winter, right? When my oldest was in second grade, he was doing travel hockey, competitive downhill ski racing, and Nordic ski racing. And I had the other three kids. So we had joined everyone in collectively losing our minds to schedule our kids. None of my other children, like the second one got a little of that and the third one. So I was like, here's a snowboard. Good luck. (laughs) Although I will say they all play travel hockey. So it's not like we left this entirely. Anyway, so this is our life. And this is also the research. The research is we answer researchers' questions. We tell them we would rather do laundry than spend time with our kids. We lead to studies that say things like how having children robs parents of their joy. And then there's fantastic books out there, All Joy and No Fun, The Paradox of Modern Parenting. And what I'm getting at is that I'm in the middle of this. I'm living it. I'm writing it. I'm soaking in it. And I'm just thinking, how do we make that stop? How do we make this better. I get that I'm not going to be able to provide daycare for everyone. I'm sorry, and I'm going to work for it, and I'm going to advocate, and I'm going to vote. But given the hand that we're dealt, how do we make this like a happier experience? So I decided that was going to be my thing. And my place where I wanted to go deeper than a thousand words was to try to figure out, to answer the question, why is this all joy and no fun? To sort of do the sequel to that. That's what I love that book. (laughs) And my first thought was, okay, let's make this more fun. So I made a list of all the fun things that we could do as a family. And I made a book proposal. It was like, we will do fun things. We will ride roller coasters. We will pull taffy. We will, then I really got almost to the end of the book proposal. I looked at it and I I almost cried. (laughs) Because I have to tell you, I don't want to do fun things. (laughs) I don't want to do anything, actually. (laughs) It could have been like fun games to play with your children. Nap time for mommy. This is the one year you bring her the... Yeah. So no fun thing. So I tossed that one out the window and I started thinking, well, it's not that I want to have more fun. I don't want to do more fun things. I want to enjoy the things that we are already doing a whole lot more. So that's the book that I chose. And I went with the title, How to Be a Happier Parent. And One of the interesting things as I was researching, a researcher looked at me and said, you know, sometimes I feel like when I talk to Americans, that Americans are afraid to be happy. And I feel that. Like, I feel when I talk about the topic of how to be a happier parent, or even when I think about it myself, like, I want to make myself happier. I'm like, well, is that okay? Is it okay for me to want to be happier? So I wanted to talk about that first. So let's just start with yes. (laughs) It's absolutely okay for us to want to be happier. Look, being happy yourself, it does so many great things for other people if we need to do it that way. People who are happier, they're healthier, so we're less of a drain on the medical system. We make better employees. We give more to charity. We're better parents. We're nicer to be around, so we make the people around us happier. Plus, being happy is not a zero-sum game. I mean, I get it. Things are not super fantastic in our country at the moment. There's a lot of frustrating stuff going on. But being happier yourself doesn't take anything away. In fact, it adds to your ability to help change those frustrating things. If you're lost in the mire of depression over things that you can't change, you're certainly not going to be a part of changing them. It's also not a zero-sum game. Your happiness doesn't take anything away from anybody else's happiness. It's not a pie. We can all have some. We can all have as much as we can get. 
really, and it's free. I mean, maybe a vacation in Bali would make you happier. There's actually research that says it probably wouldn't. And it's not lasting happiness either, but lots of things that will make you happier are totally, I mean, I, I get happier just by going to Walmart with a list of three things, you know, sunscreen, bleach, and paper towels, and leaving with only the three things. Yeah, I can stick it to the man. Yeah, I'm good at that. So it's free. So I have a question for you guys. How many of you would put your kids' happiness above your own? Right, that's lots. So I'm gonna push back against that a little bit because we actually can't control our kids' happiness. You can only control your own happiness. And we maybe don't even wanna raise kids who think somebody else is in charge of their happiness. So it's not like, I didn't ask you if you would put your kids' well-being above your own. I didn't ask you if you'd put their future or their health or their security. Obviously, we're gonna make sacrifices for our children, but when we're thinking about happiness, it's an interesting process to think about, well, who wins and where, and how are we defining happiness? And does that mean that the fact that they would like me to read them a five-minute story trumps my lunch date? I don't know. I think not. So, okay. Another question. So I'm going to give you a list of three things. And I want to know which value you would like your kids to put first. So no voting yet, because I'm going to tell you what the three things are. Would you prefer that your kids value academic success, their academic success, their own happiness, or caring for others? So it's not like they can't have all three, but which is at the top of their list if they're checking off a list of values? So academic success, happiness, caring for others. All right, how many want academic success to be at the top of that list? Nobody. You can be okay. Happiness. How many want their own happiness? Okay. And how many want caring for others to be at their top of their list of values? All right, so we're pretty split between happiness and caring for others. Here's how your kids... So most parents put caring for others at the top of that. And that's a little bit, I mean, I think that's kind of a loaded, first of all, I'm up here talking about happiness, so we're thinking happiness. And also it's like better to put caring for it. So I think this is, <laughs> I get, this is a little bit of a loaded survey, but most parents put caring for others at the top. So the interesting question is how do our kids answer that? So 80% of our kids put either their academic success or their own happiness above caring for others. But what's really interesting is that the parents, they want caring for others at the top. So our kids aren't getting the message that we think that we're sending them, that caring for others can outweigh success or personal happiness. And they're not getting any messages about other happiness as well. I think part of that is because when we live our lives with them, we're not asking them to put any value on anybody else's happiness besides their own. We don't ask them to value our own happiness. We do the things that make them happy. We have the meals that make them happy. We take the vacations that make them happy. We spend our weekends making them happy. We spend our afternoons driving them around and making them happy. Like, I'm here to talk about how to be a happier parent, and we're totally getting to mornings and chores and homework and everything like that. But there's this dichotomy. When researchers consider whether or not parents are happy, what they look at is what they call parental efficacy. So that means whether or not you feel like you're pretty good at this thing. So even though I sort of started out, I actually make a joke to my kids, I didn't write a book about how to be a better parent. I wrote a book about how to be a happier parent, okay? <laughs> Sorry, I forgot to make you a haircut appointment. But whether or not we feel like we're pretty good at this has to do with our happiness. So we can talk about our own happiness and there's a lot 
to be done and a lot to be changed there. But the two things play together. I can't talk about one without talking about the other. And it actually took me a little while to learn that because I keep getting up and going, no, I only want to talk about happier parenting, but I keep ending up talking about what we're actually doing as parents. And they're more combined than I had realized. So I think that some of what's going wrong when we feel like we're not as happy as we could be in our day-to-day family lives is that we feel like things are a little out of whack. Like the fact that we're putting our kids' happiness above our own is kind of giving them the wrong message. We're feeling that survey where they're saying their happiness and their academic success is more important than caring for others. We're just feeling like somehow something's not quite right. So I just, I feel like that's an underlying piece of all of this. The truth is that we really do want our kids to be sort of happy. At any given moment, you look at your kids, you want them to be happy. But on the other hand, you really don't want to raise the child who has never so much as lost a balloon. That would be the worst college roommate ever. (laughs) So I can't actually tell you what will make you feel happier as a parent. It might be spending more time at church or synagogue. It might be doing more time hiking. Um, There's a lot of things like individually, you kind of have to look at what's going wrong for you and what you can change. But I can tell you what parents who consider themselves happier think and do differently. So I wanted to start with generally how parents who sort of rank themselves as happier, I could talk about all the research that I did, and but just trust me, there was a lot. So people who consider themselves happier parents, they often think about things differently than people who don't. One thing that they tend to do, and they do things differently, so one thing they tend to do is they let their kids' independence evolve. So parents who are happier with younger kids, they're pretty involved on a day-to-day basis. They just, they describe a more involved life. But as the kids get older, the parents start describing doing things that encourage their kids to do for themselves. So they're less involved on a day-to-day basis with homework, with activities, with reading, just all the things. And they're also encouraging more independence on behalf of their kids. You know, their kids are maybe more likely to do chores, more likely to cook meals. Parents who describe themselves as happier Also, keep an adult perspective on the things that stress us out. They know that a lot of the things that we consider threats to our children are not really threats at all. So the things that get a, like that moment when your second grader didn't get into the classroom with all of her friends, like all of her friends are in classroom A, and she's the only one in classroom B, and she's going to feel totally left out. Plus, teacher B, that's the strict teacher. And there's 17 kids in classroom A and 18 kids in classroom B. So she could totally be the 18. Yeah. People who are happier, no, that's not a threat. It's a growth opportunity. So not getting into the class is not a threat. Not getting invited to the birthday party, not a threat. Losing a girlfriend, not a threat. Failing a Spanish test, not a threat. Not getting into the college that you want to, not a threat. These are getting bigger, right? Losing a job, also not a threat. Parents who are happier, they take an adult perspective to these things that happen to our kids. I was just listening to the Happier in Hollywood podcast this morning, which I love. And they were talking about how a lot of time when you lose a job, it's your like springboard to the next job, to a great job. But as parents, it's really hard to see that catastrophe for your kid as a springboard. I mean, that second grade class, that could be the teacher that she looks back on. Or she could meet her best friend, but all you can see is the immediate 
unhappiness to our kids. And it's so hard. I don't want to, it's not like I'm up here. I'm not my kids come home and they go, I didn't get invited to the birthday party. And I say, yay, growth opportunity. <laughs> it's so not like that. Like it, this is tough. So I have a series of mantras of things that I think about when I sort of need to go, when, when my kid has lost the balloon or you know, didn't get into the class or whatever. One of them is what you want now is not always what you'll want later. So that's a huge one. What you want now is the kid who feels happy with their class assignment. What you want later is the kid that knows that sometimes things don't work out and we roll with it, right? I mean, those are tough. And that one comes up again and again. There's another one that I like because now I'm, I'm about, so I'm, as I transition colors, I'm about to get into the, the specific areas where we have parental challenges. But another one that I love is you do you. And I want to talk about this one first because I'm about to go into like, these seven areas where parents have a wicked time. Mornings, homework, chores, sports and activities, meal times. I made that list the same way that you would. I just sat down, <laughs> made a list. And then I surveyed a thousand of my closest Facebook friends. I was like, what is killing you? And of course, you know, they all said screen time. And so did I. Anyway, you do you is, well, it's a couple of things. And one of them is that when I make that list of mornings and chores and meal times and screen times and whatever, you're probably thinking to yourself, oh my God, I'm so bad at such and such. But what is really great is also to think about, okay, actually, I got meal times. That one's okay. Like it's not perfect. It's not like I'm going to give lessons and meal times, but I got that one. So most of us have at least a couple of areas where you're okay. Like when we're trying to make other things happier, it's really important to think about the areas where we actually already are happy. We really tend as people to focus on the negative stuff, the threats and the scary stuff and the stuff that's making us unhappy. But focusing on the stuff that's working, that's a great way to get happier too. So when I was researching this, I would talk to parents and they would give me their list of things that, that made them unhappy. But I would also say, well, what are you doing well? And that's kind of, that's how I got most of the stuff in the book. The parent who was like, oh my God, chores are killing me would be like, oh, but mornings, we do this really cool thing. We have this set pay playlist and at 7.42, which is when they need to brush their teeth, this music comes on. I'm like, that's awesome. I couldn't actually emulate in, the, in my own house, but it was a fantastic piece of advice. So we all have, we have the stuff that we're doing right. All right, so how to get a little more happy in your own day-to-day -day life. Now I'm gonna talk about like the day-to-day, -day, the grunts, the stuff. So I like to look at each of these topics in the same way and to ask yourself, okay, so what is killing me about mornings? Like, is it the getting up? Is it the getting the kids up? Is it the getting them out of the house? Is it that there's never anything to eat for breakfast? Like, look for the thing that's like tormenting you and try to figure out what is something that you could do that might make that one thing go a little bit better. And if there's something that you can't change, then another question is sort of, well, how could I look at it differently? And I'm about to sort of do this in the area of mornings. And the last thing I always ask myself is, okay, what is the real goal? So when it comes to mornings, I used to think that the real goal was getting the kids out of the house on time with all their stuff. That seems like a good goal, right? And what I realized is that actually my goal in the morning is that everybody have a pretty decent start to their day. And that turned out to be a super different approach. So I got two things about mornings. And one is a different way to think about it. And another is something different that you can do. So the thing to do differently in the morning, and everybody totally hates this. It's super lame. 
the thing to do better in the morning, the thing that you can do to make your mornings better is to get more sleep. Okay, fine. I'm going to go buy Ariana Huffington's book. Great. Do that. It's a, it's a great book. But I actually want to think about, I want you to think about getting more sleep a little differently because everybody's totally happy to get more sleep in the morning, right? Everybody would roll back over this minute, but we can't do it that way. We have to get it on the other end. And bedtimes are challenging. We could have a whole chapter on bedtimes. I actually didn't. It's kind of wrapped up in this one. But the thing that you can do differently that can make bedtimes better is you can allow the thing that makes bedtimes hard for parents and for teenagers isn't just the shoveling of the young kids into bed. It's that we pack our days with so many awesome activities. There's so much great stuff to do. There's so many opportunities. You can take so many classes. You can do so much fun stuff online. We get down to 9, 9.30, 10 o'clock at night, and we're still on somebody else's clock. We're still doing Kumon. We're still doing homework. We're still driving kids to sports practice. Our kids are still at play practice or whatever. And it's not until 9.30 or 10 o'clock that you feel like, okay, my time is now my own. And it's bedtime. That's frustrating. Like that makes it makes every one of us crazy. And it makes our kids, especially our teenagers, crazy. So when you look at evenings and you realize that you're going to take that time for Netflix and Snapchat and Fortnite and reading and playing the guitar and talking to your partner, you're going to take that. So you got to allow for it. It's something different that you can do. There are some great researchers out there. Denise Pope is one of them. They call it playtime, downtime, family time. And scheduling that in, it gives bedtimes just a little more slack. So that's something differently to do that helps mornings. And there's a lot of like little tiny things in my book, but if I did that, then I would never get to the other topics. The different way to think about mornings is this. So mornings are crazy because you got to get everybody out of the house with all the stuff. You got to get your kid with their backpack and they got to get packed and they have to have their gym shoes and they have to have their lunch and they have to have their violin and they have to have six manila folders and a jar of grape jelly. And you don't know why. All you know is that they just told you you needed this and you have to leave the house in five minutes. So the thing to think differently is to you, it's like so much is at stake. Nothing, nothing is at stake for you in the morning. If your kid is four minutes late and has no violin and no lunch and no homework and no gym shoes and no grape jelly, nothing bad is going to happen to you. (laughs) And nothing bad will happen to your kid. Like, in fact, there we go, growth opportunity again, right? Plus, you don't even have to be responsible for the consequences. Someone else will take care of that. I mean, there are times when this doesn't, like sometimes you need them to get out of house. You've got a carpool or you've got whatever. But if you look at it differently as it's on them to get all their stuff together, to get themselves out, to get themselves moving, that your role is supposed to get yourself out and also to be sort of a pleasant and benevolent presence in the (laughs) world. I mean, you don't have to be like, I told you to pack that last night. And how many times have we said you're going to put your homework in? Yeah, you don't have to be that. You can be like, oh, dude, so sorry you can't find your other sneaker. Want a Pop-Tart? <laughs> the difference, this is one of the biggest changes that I made. It does make a difference for my kids. I'm much more pleasant, but the difference it makes for me not to be screeching out of the carpool line with the window rolled down screaming, I told you we'd be late, <laughs> which is me three years ago. To just like me, like, hey, 
have a good day best you can. I know you're late, but you know, it's, it's so much more pleasant. Like this is totally a route. This is a totally a route to my own personal happiness. All right. I can seriously do like an hour on mornings, but they list, they said I was going to do nine things. I'm never getting to nine things, but we're going to go right on to chores. All right. So chores is a funny one because I really strongly feel that it's better for kids to do chores and that it makes us happier if our kids are helping around the house, that we have this gut feeling that if we're the only ones clearing the table and we also made the meal, something is going wrong. But realistically, there are happy parents out there that say, my kid's not doing chores. I'm not fighting that battle. So that's your first decision right there. Do you want them to do chores or are you just like, and and my editor wouldn't let me put this in the book, honestly, but I totally talked to parents who said, you know, my kids didn't help out around the house and now they're 30 and they have their own houses and they're clean and they don't live in a pit of cockroaches and it's all fine. So (laughs) that's not a route to happiness for me. And I don't know that it's great for kids, but those kids are fine. So decide. This is another mantra for happier parenting. Decide what to do and then do it. So if you don't want to fight the chore battle, don't fight the chore battle. But if you're in, and I am in, what you want for chores is you want two things, typically. We want our kids to do the chore, whatever it is, right? We want them to pick up the towel or put their socks in the laundry or empty the dishwasher. Also, the second thing that we would like, we would like them to do that with a happy, pleasant attitude and an understanding that they are helping the family run more smoothly and contributing to the running of the household in a perfectly reasonable and acceptable, yeah. Okay, so the parents that I talked to whose kids did stores successfully, especially the ones whose kids were older and out of the house now, all uniformly said, throw that second thing out the window, whatever. Whatever, your whole goal, like your everything that you want to focus on is that first piece. You want the kid to be the one who picks up the towel off the bathroom floor. And realistically, that's going to go like this. Pick up the towel. Please pick up the towel. Your towel is on the bathroom floor. Did I mention the towel? Mold, mold grows under the, hey, your towel? Yo, yo, wake up, wake up, your towel. Your towel. Yeah, that's going to involve signs. It's going to involve paper airplanes. I have to say, okay, research shows that it takes the average child approximately five years to learn to clear their dish from the table and put it into the dishwasher without being asked. And the fact that that research was done on a sample set of four in my kitchen (laughs) should not make you trust it any less. So, The thing about chores, the awful, awful truth about chores is that if you want your kids to do it, it's on you. They're not going to step up. I mean, eventually when they're 18, anything will work. Whatever makes you happy in terms of making your kids, getting them to do that. You can have a chore chart. You can have a rotating wheel. You can give them little prizes. You can put dollars in a cup and take one out every time. Anything, absolutely everything can work if you stick with it which is definitely where I fall down, that is really hard. So when you narrow down the goal, when you say, my goal is just that they're going to do this, I'm not going to worry that I have to keep reminding them. That, for me, has been a real happiness boost because it's a downer. To I mean, my God, you really think your socks belong in balls on the floor of the kitchen? Every three of my children, every day, all the socks, I mean... It just it makes what what am I? I'm a terrible parent. How can I have not taught you that the socks go at least on the floor of your room? <laughs> so to release that, to be like, okay, actually, all the kids, 
everybody is dealing with this. Like nobody, I mean, really, I would leave my socks on the floor of the kitchen if somebody would come and put them away. I mean, everybody's dealing with it. So when you release that feeling that the fact that they're not doing it happily and merrily and with an understanding that it helps you out means you're a bad parent, or that they're bad children, or that you're failing, or that they're gonna be the college roommate who thinks that the fairies come in the night and do the dishes. None of that, you can just let that go. Like that, everybody, everybody's dealing with that. And then, like, it's still not fun, please pick up your towel, but it's just better, it feels better. It feels, yeah, yeah, okay, happier. All right, they said nine areas, I wanna give you what they promised, siblings. I really didn't. I was going to say, like, can we do less than like, siblings? Can I just, okay, because siblings are tough. I've got, if you've only got one, you can just go, because <sighs> I'm an only child and I didn't actually fight with anyone. <laughs> it's like, it's all good. And maybe that's some of the reason that I struggle with my kids' sibling relationships. There was an excerpt from the book on siblings that appeared in the New York Times, and I was looking at the comments the other day, which I never do, but they had like a highlighted comment right in the middle of the piece. I think I needed to cite it for something. And someone had shared a joke. So this was my stand-up moment. So a man complained to his rabbi that God had given him them 10 commandments. And one of them had to honor thy parents, but God had given him no guidance on how to deal with his siblings. And the rabbi said, oh, yes, he did. And the man was like, what? And he said, thou shalt not kill. <laughs> that is the sibling relationship at our house. So I think the thing about siblings is it kind of depends on how old your kids are. When they're pretty young, it's probably going to make you happier to be a little more involved, to be getting in there, to be saying, oh, gee, Joey wants to build with blocks and Sally wants to kick blocks over today. How are we going to deal with this? And, you know, working with them, trying to get them talking to each other. There are some fantastic books out there about mom so-and-so's breathing on me is one of my favorites, how to talk to kids so that kids will listen and listen so kids will talk. That's another one that's got some great stuff. Oh, Siblings Without Rivalry, that's by the same people. So those are some great resources for teaching little kids to sort of start learning to get along with their siblings. But the thing that also makes you happier is if as after you've done that, if you've sort of been in that, and Joey wants to do this, and Sally wants to do that, okay. At some point, you have to let Joey and Sally, they gotta figure this out. Joey and Sally got a long life together, and they're going to have to sort. So at some point to step back and understand that everybody has the thou shalt not kill problem and sibling relationships are challenging, but that those challenges are good for kids. It's fine not to have them. I seem to be okay. I didn't have them. But if your kids have a sibling, they're having to learn a lot about negotiating, about sharing, about working with others, about dealing with people that you absolutely hate and possibly sitting in the back seat with them. These are good things. And if you can take a step back and let them, if the blood is not seeping through the ceiling, then you can let them sort of get through, even if it sounds horrible. My husband and I sort of have sat down and we, we, so we have, there are the do not goes, and I can't even tell you what there are. There are the couple things that our kids are not allowed to say to each other because it is too, like that is the sore spot. But then there's the other, I mean, honestly, in our house, my, one of my daughters calls the other one fat. It's just ridiculous. To them, that isn't a thing. They're also, well, they're not necessarily. I mean, they're just reasonably sized, but it's just not an issue. So they can be up there shrieking at each other. You have a fat, saggy butt. I'm not going in there unless they go over the other stuff, which, like I said, not even allowed to tell you. 
So learning to let go of that and let them start to work it out was a huge happiness booster for me. I had these daughters that were really just really in the middle of it. And part of the problem, honestly, was me. Because it seemed so like one of them was always totally wrong. It wasn't the same one every time, but I would be listening and I'd be like, no, it's totally, of course she wants to be in the bathroom alone. Or no, no, wait, I mean, this is so unreasonable that you like, my daughter used to set her alarm clock. She wanted alone time, my older daughter. She wanted to be alone in the morning. So she'd set her alarm clock for six so she could get up. All four kids share a bathroom and she could get up and have some space in there. She was 12 at the time. And her younger sister set her alarm clock for 5.59. And she leapt out of bed and she ran into the bathroom. She slammed the door. And I mean, you can't imagine being awake. I, we thought the house was burning down. Like the screams, and that's totally unreasonable. But sometimes we have to let them work this stuff out for themselves to a certain extent. Because our real goal with the siblings isn't that they sort of have a peaceful coexistence now. It's that they work out some sort of real life existence that's going to outlive you. All right, zoom, zoom through the different topics. So sports and activities. I could just go on about this. So the thing about sports and activities is if you, as a kid, participated in soccer or dance or spelling bees or whatever, and you're looking at your kid now and you're going, man, I don't remember this being so complicated. You're right. (laughs) Objectively, things have changed. I've done the research. Soccer, it's different. The expectations are different. It starts younger. It gets serious quicker. Most kids are practicing more. There's far more opportunity. You can have a special coach. And why don't you join the spring break team and play four times? And what about, sure, soccer is a fall sport, but now we're going to play all winter in the end. We have been gamed up. And it's the same with everything. Dance, oh, there's an extra bonus recital. And hey, there's the special dance club. And if you're in the dance club, you get to wear the satin jacket. It costs 400 dollars and violin lessons it used to be once a week la, la, la. now it's here's the cd you have to play this in the car until your ears fall off and you're expected to sit in on the lesson so you can help anybody who's done suzuki is going to recognize that one lasted about 10 minutes kind of sad i wanted to give my child violin lessons i would have learned to play them anyway <laughs> it's different it really truly is and in that way it's hard to resist it The opportunities to play these things and to do these things on a light, fun level are rapidly disappearing. Some of that is because we buy in. We think that maybe if you don't start at four, you're not going to be able to do it at five, and you won't be able to do it at eight, and you're never going to make varsity, and you won't go to college. Yeah. Like, we believe, and that's ridiculous. So one thing we can do is just let that go. But it's hard. It's hard, and everybody else around it is doing it, and it's hard to push back. And if your kid wants, you know, mom, everybody else is going to do the club team next year. And you're like, okay. And then it turns out the club team practices at 8 o'clock at night. It's tough, and you will you will do things that you said that you won't. But also, what I've learned is that you can push back in ways that we don't necessarily think. I think we tend to feel powerless. We sort of sign our kid up for the hockey, as is the case in our family. And then we feel like, well, now... They have to go to the practices, right? That's actually not the way it works. If you speak up, if you're like, I don't know if you know this, but if they practice at 8.30 at night and half of the families live half an hour away, that means they're not home until 10. And that's even if they didn't take their gear off. So they're not home until 10.30 and they have to be up at 5.30 to catch the bus for school. And here's the research on sleep. And my child is not going to be coming to that practice. I've had that conversation and 
eventually the practices moved back. Now you can also have that conversation and hear the coach say, well, then your child is not cut out for this team. That's okay. Maybe your child's not cut out for that team. They don't have to do all the things. They really don't. So actually the one thing I wanted to tell you about sports and activities wasn't any of that. It was that the biggest thing you can do for your own happiness when it comes around to sports and activities for kids is to have your own. We really give up our stuff when we have kids. We put it aside. We stop biking. We stop racing. We stop knitting. And we just, we drive them to all of their things. And we, you know, we cruise around with them and we sit in the audience and we applaud. And if any of you would like to sign up to drive me around and sit in the audience and applaud while I do things, well, actually, I guess you kind of are. <laughs> I had to get myself here. So that would be awesome. But they're kind of looking at us and we're not making this grown-up thing look good. Like, we're great. What are we doing? We're raising them so that they can have their own kids and drive them around and applaud. It's a little bit crazy. The single biggest thing that will keep you from getting overly involved in your kids' swim meets is to have a master swim meet to go to of your own. And it's also a great thing to show your kids. Like here, you know, I'm an adult. Being an adult is fun. Being an adult means making the choices about what you get to eat and where you get to go and where you get to drive and all and what you get to do with your spare time. And these are the choices that I'm making. Too often the choice that we're making is to drive them to their thing. We'll do some of that. Obviously, we're all going to do some. I do a lot of that. I have four travel hockey players. But when, when we go to their hockey games, they know. A couple of things are going to be true. First of all, I control the radio. No questions asked. Secondly, we don't go to the team dinner at Buffalo Wild Wings. I mean, once in a while, sure. But there's a great taco place down the street. We're going to try that. We're going to go to the bookstore. We're going to go to the yarn store. And during their games, I can watch six or seven hockey games in a weekend. And I love hockey, but that's a little much. So yeah, I'm the parent with the headphones on and the knitting. If they are out there playing because I am watching, they are not playing for the right reason. And they know it. So... Another thing to think about as you sort of think about, in particular with regard to sports, is that something that kids say about sports and activities is that their least favorite, this is in particular sports, but I think it applies in a lot of places, their least favorite thing about sports is the ride home. Because the ride home is when we have suggestions. <laughs> Best thing you can say to a kid after the game, and this is some fantastic research done by a coach, a guy with a ton of youth sports experience, is I love to watch you play. Did you have fun? Let's go get ice cream. That's it. We really, we get a little too involved. All right, the real goal of sports and activities, because I said we were going to talk about the real goals and these things, is just that they have enough fun to make it worth the amount that you invest in it. And by the way, youth sports travel, $9 billion a year industry. Not youth sports. Not like the money you're shelling out for the club teams, the travel piece of it. So when you're asking yourself, why is this happening? The answer is because some people are making money from it. <laughs> My final thing is that I'm sorry, your child is not going to college on a sports scholarship. I know the numbers on this. I can stand up here and recite them to you. Not happening. <laughs> All right. Screens. This could eat up like the whole room, right? Screen time. This, sometimes I don't want to talk about this because this is a this is a struggle. The struggle in my family too. It's not like I'm super happy about you know the way my kids are not actually playing Fortnite right now. I know because they're at school, but that's the only way I know. And if one of them was in the bathroom, I couldn't really speak to that. Okay, so screen time is like really high on everybody's list of ah, you know this is not making me happy. 
when it comes to screen time, if you've got little kids like that aren't in control of their own devices or their own TV, you should be totally in control. If their whining is changing the amount of screen time that they get, then something is going wrong and it's time for a reset. Everyone will be happier. One of the rules around that reset might be if you whine, it goes away tomorrow. You won't have to enforce that more than once. So when it's little kids, I think it's pretty clear that families are happier when parents are fully in control and feeling it. Like, this is my thing. And it doesn't depend on when you beg for it. In our family, that meant a black letter rule that everyone could understand. Yes on weekends, no on weekdays. That made me happy just because I didn't have to adjudicate it. I know people that do the whole, like, for every minute of reading, you get a minute of screen time. I mean, what is that, a spreadsheet? That would not work for me. But it might work for you. So having a rule that makes you happy that doesn't involve kids falling on the floor and whining while you're cooking dinner because they want screens, that's key. So that's little kids. With older kids, the thing that I keep coming back to with screen screen time comes back to that question of what is our goal? And our goal with our older kids is not to have teenagers who can follow our screen time rules. Our goal with our older kids is to have teenagers who understand the need to moderate themselves. And that is so hard because we are struggling with that as adults. But what we want, what we want now is a kid who's not scrolling through Snapchat. But what we want later is a kid who can go to college and not get caught up in everybody else on Facebook is at a party and I'm not, or not miss all their classes because Fortnite. So the road there is one I can't unfortunately give you. I wish I could. We're in the middle of it ourselves. But the sort of happiness booster is to be talking about it constantly, to understand that that's the goal, to have your kids know that that's the goal, that what you're trying to do is help them towards a healthy relationship with these screens that have invaded all of our bags and our pockets, and to understand that we also are struggling with that. So to talk openly about that. And what's making me happier around this is that that is a national conversation that our teenagers are super aware of. They're part of this. They know it's a problem. A lot of them don't like that feeling that they're getting, you know, after half an hour of Instagram. And they're hearing it from their teachers. They're hearing it from their counselors. They're hearing it from their pediatricians, their peers. They'll hear it at their colleges. Honestly, this is their generational problem. We are not going to be able to solve it for them. But they're trying. They really are. If you start listening to the teenagers, reading what they're writing, they're on this. So being a part of that transition for them is a good way to feel happier about what's happening, even if you're not necessarily happy about the amount of time that your kid is immediately spending on a screen tonight. We want them to make the mistakes around screen time while we're here to help them, not when they go to college. So you want your kid to stay up all night on Fortnite, which I've mentioned six times because it's really a deep part of my life at the moment, and screw up a test the next morning. You want them to do that like as an eighth grader, not a freshman in college, so that you can help them work through what happened. All right, the last one I was gonna do is meals, but we're at 10 minutes. So all I will say about meal time is that five o'clock you would be a lot happier if Sunday you would give her or him some idea of what to cook. <laughs> Yeah, but that said, the goal for mealtimes is that you want that time to be pleasant because there's some great research out there that shows that when families with double working parents and kids all in full-time school, the time that we're all in one room together really centers around mealtime. So this is not a, yay, kids do less drugs if they eat dinner with their parents. It's not that. It's just that that's your time. And so making that pleasant and not falling prey to all the shoulds 
It should be organic. It should be healthy. It should be homemade. It should be this. It should be that. But just shooting for goodness in that solid block of time. That's what's really important. Okay. My last thing before I ask you for questions. The last thing that parents do and my final mantra is that happier parents take time to soak up the good, to notice when things are either great or just pretty okay, or they've just managed to get out of Walmart with only the three things on their list and their kids not screaming and go, yeah, this is a good moment. And not just let that fleet by, but actually absorb it. Share it with a friend. Come back to it later in the day. I had a little victory day. I got to the doctor's office on time. And let your brain absorb those good moments because that gives you a cushion against that whole ramping up into the bad moments things. That's a little piece of brain science and I can't get into it. But soak up the good is a great thing you can do to be happier. Like you can just start doing it right now. And I don't know, it's one of my favorite mantras. So now I am done. Question. Yes, I have a question. So you obviously have a husband. We sounds like a lot of us probably have partners in here. And sometimes our ideas on what will make each of us happier parents differs considerably. So I'm wondering if you came up with that or have any advice, because unfortunately it seems to come up a lot in my house, but I'd like a way to, I guess, sort of find common ground or find a a way to make us both happy. It's a tough one. I do not tell my husband what would make him a happier parent. That would not be a success. That would not make me a happier person. So a couple of things. If you're different, a lot of the times people differ, for example, in how much sports and activities their kids should do. One partner will think more, one partner will think less. They they differ around the importance, sort of how to moderate these moments in life. And this is hard. So one of the things that I do with my partner is I slip in research that doesn't come from me. (laughs) Sometimes it's research that like somebody that I started out wrote, but that's okay. It's funny, but so I make sure that he has access, send him stuff, and he sends me stuff. But to have an ongoing conversation about why you maybe think it's important to have just one day, one afternoon off a week, if that's the challenge, or why you'd rather everybody, including him or her, put their phone away at dinner. To sort of talk about your reasons for why you think these are not like, I really think you should do it this way, but here's why I think this works better for families. That's one thing. And Also, you don't have to do things the same way. I mean, you don't want kids to play off. Daddy said I could do it. And mommy said, you don't want that. But it's okay that your partner offers more help with homework than you do, or that your partner is more willing to make them breakfast. My partner really doesn't get the morning thing. Like, he screams like a banshee in the morning still. We actually just sort of all move around him now, like his little satellites while he yells and and everyone else tries to get through their day. It's just, it's a known thing. (laughs) Oh, well. So it's okay to have a different approach. I don't have a question. I just have a comment. When I was a new mom, the New York Times addict in me read you and looked forward to reading what you had to say every single day. (laughs) I was going through a terrible time in my career, just really unhappy and not figuring out if this was going to work. And I would like to extend my most grateful thanks to you. you. Well, that was the greatest job ever. I'm not doing it anymore, but the Times is starting a new parenting. And I don't think they've really embarked on it yet, but the people behind it are fantastic and they're going to do even more around parenting. They're doubling down and putting some weight on this extremely important topic, which is fantastic because that was actually a battle that I fought frequently 
while I was there was, hello, this is important. So we're finally winning, kind of. Hi, thank you. Good morning. So I have a question. So I'm a working parent. I have three kids under age five. My husband and I both work full time. So we don't have a lot of time that we carve for our relationship. Mm -hmm. I just didn't know if you had any tips. I feel like we're always trying to work on what's better for him or me or the kids. And we want to continue our relationship for many years to come. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So getting through your season of sacrifices is part of it. And knowing, talking regularly, like we're not having as much time together as we would like. But also, there may be something that you're doing for those kids that they don't necessarily need to be signed up for. They probably don't like being babysat. Most kids tend not to, unless you have a really fantastic babysitter. They'll survive. It's fine. So to shovel them, to leave, to go do absolutely nothing together, to go take a walk while they're... That is all okay. So I guess making your kids a little less happy in the name of getting out there with your partner is totally... It's not just fine. It's better for everyone. That's one thing. And kids can have quiet time, sort of, this is the time when daddy and I are together in this room and you guys are together in that room. And again, that's really good for them. It's hard for us to sort of force our kids into something that they're not enjoying, especially when they're little, in the name of something that while we enjoy it, it doesn't seem important. I mean, it's easy to be like, I need a babysitter because I have to go to work. But I need a babysitter because you and I need to go to the grocery store together without our kids. That just feels weird. But it's good for you. It's better for everybody. So I don't know how helpful that is. Do it. (laughs) It's better to have a strong relationship if you can. Great. Well, thank you, guys. This was fantastic. You just heard from K.J. Delantonio a columnist and contributing editor at the New York Times and author of How to Be a Happier Parent. To learn more about her current work, please visit www.kjdelantonio.com. Thanks for listening. We hope you found this session helpful, and we invite you to tune in for more best breakouts from the Conferences for Women. Uh